1: It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com Get ready to write for your life.
2: Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters, Stephen Barnes and Tananarive
1: do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood and balancing life. Every week, we're sharing more tips on how to build a better life
2: while you create your dream projects.
1: Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Yay. Here we are.
2: Back live. We had a best of life writing last week, which was actually great because it was Rodney Barnes. I could watch that every, I could listen to that every week, <laughs> but, uh, huh. but it's also good. To That's be back the of,
1: energy of knowing smart people, you know, just people who are actually in the game. In the, in the, whenever you talk to people who are successful in a particular arena, Every single time, anytime, they see things differently from people outside the arena or people who've not been successful. I've never seen an, an exception to that. And in my He's, book, all you have to do to increase your own efficiency and effectiveness is figure out what's the difference between what the successful people say and what the unsuccessful people say.
2: Right. And having access and people willing to come and sit with us and chat with us on our little podcast is so exciting. I'm grateful to all of our guests. But Rodney's a special one. and and one day we'll have to have him back. And yes. uh, we get to watch uh, winning time, Rise of the Lakers. Oh. Dynasty is back. so that that that'll be fun to watch that anyway, darling, i'm I'm traveling, but before i I start talking about that, why don't we do it officially and talk about what's going on? <laughs> That's right. Happy dance, happy feet in the aisles, in the pews. Everybody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's good to be back. I am. We were just together until yesterday, but now I'm in Atlanta and you're back at home. Yes, I'm and back shall here. we t- tell people about the milestone we just celebrated? Yes, we celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. Our twenty. Did y'all hear what he said? Apparently not. Our twenty fifth wedding anniversary. Okay. We Celebrate like, whatever they think. Like, celebrated no big deal. it
1: in the town where it all started, Atlanta. It's because true. That was where when I, we fell in love.
2: It's where we met. We fell in love. It was at Clark Atlanta University, which did actually, I believe. It's the
1: first Black speculative fiction
2: conference. I have not heard of another one before it. You can tell well, if me if there, I'm wrong. There
1: wasn't one that featured, well, there could have been something that featured Octavia and Chip back in Maybe. the but I don't think so. I mean, there might have yeah. been conferences that invited them to speak and I'm sure that they were in the same place at the same time, but no, I, I think, I think it was the first. It was, yeah, it
2: was this groundbreaking. It was a 1997 And I had just published my first book. So, and the the letter got lost in the, like, you know how when you send a letter to a publisher, sometimes it takes a minute (laughs) for it to get to you. That was the case. It had been two months since they mailed the letter when I finally got it. And I was so excited because I, you know, I had heard Octavia Butler's name. I was not familiar with Samuel R. Delaney so much or Jewel Gomez, but Stephen Barnes, that name really jumped out at me. Because a friend of mine had just done this thing where he was like, oh, you two should get together. You know, you're a Black horror writer. He's a Black science fiction writer, that kind of thing, right?
1: You know, and And, I was just talking about this just a little bit earlier today, that a guy named Ken Estes, I believe it was, who asked me if I had ever heard of you. And I had not. And I kind of looked you up. It wasn't a good, it wasn't a great picture, you know? I like that picture, but
2: okay, he doesn't, I look very stern in that picture.
1: Yes, yes, it did. It's like, oh, that's interesting. You look like you were about eight feet tall. And it was was interesting enough. But what I had to think about was that the core of what we've called the soulmate process is the notion of being who it is that you are and loving yourself and being in love with your life and expressing who you are, with the notion that somebody in your circle, you know, the average person knows six hundred people. The average person in, in knows six hundred people, and somewhere in that circle is someone who knows the person you're supposed to be with. You know that, right. that basically you got what is it six six hundred times six hundred is something you know three hundred and sixty thousand or something like that, and so the notion is. To be who you are and radiate that and to tell the universe that you're looking for a partner so that you are your green light is on. So people know who you are. Somebody is going to say to somebody, there's somebody you should meet. That's exactly what happened to us. So I got to your radar, you got onto my radar, and so eventually we would have connected one way or the other. The question is, would we have connected within the window of opportunity to create a relationship? that's a separate question because you know a terrific lady like you was going to meet somebody who was going to sweep <laughs> you away and i figured that i figured you were ready and that means you probably would have met that person within the next year that, well let's know, just say the green light was on honey The soil had
2: been plowed because my friend, and I'll say his name, Mike Murano, he's also a writer, Michael Murano, and he told me such great things about you, including that you had written for The Outer Limits, and I found that interesting. I had never seen the 80s incarnation of The Outer Limits, so I was in a hotel room with my mom. We were researching our civil rights memoir together, happened to be flipping around the channels, and I noticed, oh, this is The Outer Limits. Let me just see if the show is worth anything, and whose episode was it? I found out later, but Stephen Barnes, it was the episode called The Stitch in Time. I had missed the opening credits. All I saw was the story unfolding. Amanda Plummer plays a scientist who invents a time machine so she can go back in time and kill serial killers before they can strike. And it was an amazing episode. And I went back to Mike and I said oh, I saw that the the show, The Outer Limits, this Stephen Barnes, if he wrote for that show, he must be pretty good. And I described the episode and he was like, that's Stephen Barnes's episode. I'm sorry. The universe pushed us together in so many ways.
1: Yes. I mean, I think you can say that. I mean, looking back in retrospect, you know, a leaf, if a leaf falls on the sidewalk, dropping out of a 20-story building, you can say well it's lucky that it fell that it fell there you know um and there is some luck involved in that but i think that my point is that you know if a soulmate is seen as someone who when you meet them you can see your life very clearly you know that your values and hopes and dreams and energies and so forth are all moving in roughly the same direction at the same speed and that the luck is that it happened for the two of us. Not that it would have happened, that we would not have found someone to be happy with. I happen to believe that I would not, because I love my life as it is. I think that, you know, for that and other reasons, I think you're perfect for me. I don't believe that there's anybody else out there who would be close to being as appropriate for me. But I will tell you the honest truth. I kind of think that that's the way it's supposed to feel. Then, mm-hmm. that when you when you meet someone and they're close enough, you bend toward them and you make your life such that the two of you fit. And that when yeah. it works well, it feels like this is the only thing that I want. It's the only thing that I need. Other people are like gray ghosts, you know, moving through the world. It's like, that's there are interesting people out there, but it's not your focus at all. So you get that yeah. feeling of, oh my God, this is the only one. But I think that the universe would be quite cruel if in reality there was only one person we could be with i think that it's supposed to feel that way but i don't think it's exactly that way i mean it's 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 trickier than that it's magical in the way that pair bond happens i, I but i really feel that there's a lot of truth to that in terms of you know you can feel that in terms of your relationship and I think that there are ways you can feel it in terms of your career. Can you imagine yourself in another career being as satisfied as you are doing what you're doing? Maybe teaching, but I don't think so. I love teaching, but man, that feeling of going in the flow, and we'll be talking
2: about writing later, and I can't can't wait for that. But I, I just want to go back to what you said about that, that pair bonding yeah. and that feeling that you're the only one for each other. It's probably true. Obviously. I mean, I know it for a fact that it's true that there is someone else I could have met around the time we met, like in that five-year window, I could have built a life with. It would have been a different life. I doubt very seriously it would have been a better life, but I could have built a life with someone else. Yeah. Now, 25 years later, I was thinking, you know, as I do as a horror writer, horror writer, somewhat uh, morbid thoughts. I recently had a death in my family, so, so uh, some morbid thoughts entered my mind, and I was thinking, you know, I don't know that I would look for anybody else. I don't think I would look for anybody else after Steve because we you know, after the we've we've had this this great time together, I'll always have that, you right. know, in terms of my experiences. And I just it's hard to imagine from where I am now that yes. I would be like, oh, okay, let me let me start this right again with, with somebody else. That's uh, I it like
1: right it. there. It's the you know, you found it. I think I think one of the evidences that you found it is when it feels like that's the only thing you feel. Yeah. It's hard for you to even imagine having taken another path, what what your life would be like with another person. And you you love what what you're doing so much that, like I said, everything else seems great. It's like it's it, it, it's a photocopy at, at best. Um, and there are wonderful people out there, 8 billion people in the world. but. I think once you've made your decision about what you're going to do, it's almost silly to think about doing anything else. Why would I do anything else? Why would I no. be? Why would I risk this that we've got here with, that is so wonderful? There is no chance. There's literally no chance that I would think that being with somebody else would be better. That, no. that, that does not, it's the, what I'd be throwing away is so much, is, is so much beyond what i need in a relationship you are so much more than i need you're what i want and what i desire and and that i feel that being a better and better partner for you is the same as becoming a better man a better person Mm. why would we risk that
2: yes and we are in the midst of our love feast
1: hey and uh, we're 30 34 35 days into our love feast
2: I just want it to last forever. It's really just, I know Steve is the one who first decided he would undertake it, but hopefully you feel that I'm undertaking it with you.
1: Absolutely. We, you know, we've we had try a lot to of to jobs first. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and I wake up this morning thinking, God, you know, I haven't been focusing on that, but on the other hand, I just came back from you know traveling yes. thousands of miles to spend twenty-four hours with you. So yeah, I pretty think, much. Yeah. So I think that that to a degree, yeah, we're we're doing it. We're doing it. And and it feels natural because my commitment is to doing is to celebrating who we are and who we've been and where we're going. That I don't want to spend any time outside of that celebration. They're always Me
2: neither. Yeah, you're wonderful,
1: <laughs> sweetheart.
2: And I you are too. You
1: and, know, and I think
2: ahead, the best thing, the, my favorite part of the love piece, you know this, and I might have said it before, is that so often when we're in relationships with other people, whether they're romantic or family or friends, when we run into conflict, so often our first thought is, oh, I wish he wouldn't do this. I wish right. he would stop doing that. Why does he or she keep doing this? And the love feast, and this is, you know, full disclosure, part of a Tony Robbins course, you know, I haven't done many Tony Robbins courses with you. So this is my first one with you. The whole focus of it is you learning how to be happy within the relationship you have. You doing the self-searching about, okay, why am I being so reactive when I say you, I mean the university. Yes. No, no, no. You. I mean, I, in, why in, in, am I being like? If, so why am yes. I being so reactive to this thing that just happened? Because are, as far as I'm concerned, you have changed so much from who you were before you met me.
1: I'm yes. and you I mean, were worth it. And not, only changed. not just that you were worth it, sweetheart. It was that I figured that changing in those ways was actually being more who I really was.
2: True, like, and I think yeah. you're right about that.
1: I mean yeah I mean that that I had the reaction to you that I did because I saw the potential. The potential was not just that you were fine although you were and you were brilliant and a <laughs> money maker which you are, it was that to be the mate of a woman like this you were a, a lioness. I mm-hmm. had to step into I had to, be, had to be confident that I was a lion. Now mm-hmm. If I had understood that there was an as- aspect of throwing my hat over the fence, because there were ways in which I did not even truly, deeply understand what it was to be a husband, and this is going to tie in very much with our subject today, so I'm, you know, I'm, we're not going afield from that, right, uh, right, right, because it's uh, all about I, characterization. I, I literally, I my mother was my mother and father were divorced when I was about seven. You know, it's hard for me to know where it was. I just remember I was very young when she asked me who I wanted to live with, and then she never got remarried, and my dad wasn't. I literally did not know what a relationship was, good or bad. I didn't even have anything to push against in that sense, oh, I never wanted to, I don't want it to be like that. I didn't know. So, I made it up based on pieces from different places, including fiction, including dysfunctional relationships that looked good from the outside. So I literally did not know. I think on some instinctive level, I understood how important relationships are to our maturation process and that you, that that what you deserved in a man was so obviously a person of quality, a person of force, a person of dignity, a person of compassion, a person of strength, that those things that it would take to be your partner, all of them were things that I wanted to be. There all were things that I felt that I had, but I did not understand how stressful a marriage could be in some ways because it's life. It's a heightened reality of life. You're becoming part of the other person's life and their life becomes part of your life. So that you're winding these things together. It's not separate. And I didn't understand the implications of that. And I'm 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 so glad to have had that human experience with you.
2: Well, and and still underway, and and the the beautiful thing is uh, no, because you had under, you had <laughs> undergone no, it's not over. You had undergone so many changes to craft yourself into a person you wanted to be, and and who you thought would be appropriate for me. Um, and my wanting someone who I could play with in a like a creative playground—that's something I had never had. I had never really had a seriously collaborative partner before you you know this was the the most serious collaborating I've ever done so that's amazing that you're so loving and your nature is so loving that you're such a wonderful father even more than I hoped for frankly in terms of what kind of a father you are and how much all of your relationships matter with you to you I have to be honest I'm not expecting any huge further changes from you you know what I mean so if like if there's like a little niggling like if there's a cabinet left open in the kitchen, If I'm coming down to the kitchen and every time I see a kitchen cabinet that was left open, I'm like, what's this about? That's not about you, honey. That's about me. You know what I mean? Like, so that's a small price. Like, so what? (laughs) So what if the cabinet is open? And, you know, you could, I'm sure you have a list of things you can go through with me and things that aren't perfect. And neither of us will ever be perfect. And that's okay. No,
1: you know, when I take a look i look at our behaviors as relating to our beliefs and emotional charges when there's something that i consider to be a a bad behavior of a human being a painful behavior if i believe that you know anger is fear and that we're we're protecting ourselves in some way then it's my task to say okay if, if something negative happens what is my baby afraid of here? What's going on? What's keeping her from being this incredibly positive, loving human being that I know you are? What? How is this? What is happening here? And my urge needs to be to protect you and to help you feel safer. And, well,
2: that's how I feel too.
1: Well, the most painful events in my life were events where I had a reaction to, you know, it wasn't what was happening in the outside world. It was my reaction to what was happening. And by taking responsibility for that and asking myself, who would I have to be to have not had such a powerful negative reaction? And then say, I'm going to be that person. I want to be that guy because my baby is doing the best she can. And I need to, I need to, you know, buckle up, buttercup. This is, it's my responsibility (laughs) in that sense. You know, and to the degree that I have that sense, then that creates the room for you to not feel like I'm asking you I'm disappointed in you, right? Or, yeah, I'm angry. You're trying
2: to fix me, you know. Right? We're trying like... to
1: fix you because that's definitely part of my personality is to try to fix. And what I can promise you is that I went into this process, and I, if if I was aware, I can be aware that that you would be likely to be interested in this too, without without wanting without feeling like I'm trying to get you to do it. I almost didn't tell you what I was up to because I'm glad you did though. Because I didn't want you thinking, Oh, this is how he's trying to get me into Tony Robbins. You know, it's a little bit, you know, when we talk about (laughs) fixing the car up and so forth, he knows perfectly well that we would like for him to drive that car. He also knows that we have promised him a different car. So when he talks about yeah, we're going to put that off the line as we can, but yeah. You know, and I say, well, let's take care of that. He sees that as, you know, what they're trying to do is to get me to accept this car that I do not want to accept. I understand that. And I can't pretend that there isn't some of that in there, but the most important thing is I'm trying to, I'm trying to, to help him be who it is that he says he wants to be. And if getting him the car that he really wants would be a little difficult financially, then try hoping he'd be happy with what is available at the moment strikes me as being legitimate, even if it also is probable that it increases the likelihood that he will want that car for a longer period of time. So trying Mm -hmm. to separate out the, Selfish motivations from the unselfish motivations to me is dependent on: Am I would I do this anyway? And if this person makes such a change, is it to their advantage? So it's it's difficult. Relationships are tricky, you know. Whether you're talking about husband wife or or parent child, they're they're tricky. Yes.
0: As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back.
2: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. They are tricky. And actually, this is a good segue into our topic, because when we say that we want you to make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story, that's our tag at the end. That's not just words to us. That is very much a part of the way we try to live our lives and in applying the kinds of healing tools that make us better people, more efficient people, more loving people. It also gives us a window into how to create more unforgettable, realistic, and proactive characters.
1: Hey, look, it's good enough for you. And I would like for you to take your position on, on characterization first. Please take it away.
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, this is one of my favorite things to teach. I've lectured about it around the country, even at the Geneva Writers' Conference, so technically around the world, I'm very grateful that one of the things that my readers seem to enjoy most about my work is my my characterization. And especially when I first started writing, when Black horror was not as well-known as a a subgenre, I had so many people telling me, I don't usually read this stuff, but... And some of that is just the joy of representation. You've you've never read a horror novel that had Black protagonists, but it's also, and I think this is not um, that I'm comparing myself, but it's the thing that I loved about Stephen King and why so many people love Stephen King, who may not even read a lot of other horror, is because they love their characters. So I considered him sort of a a teacher in that sense, you know, that he can write a 500-page book about a dog barking outside of the car, which is Cujo. And you can't stop reading because these characters are so compelling. And, you know, I I guess the best way to enter this would be to talk about experiences I've had either personally or in reading other people's work where I struggled a little bit. You know, one story that comes to mind is the story Rumpus Room, which is in my new short story collection that came out in April called The Wishing Pool and Other Stories. It's a novelette-sized story. And it was one of the new stories I wrote under deadline. And one of the stressful things about deadline, especially when you're writing fiction, is if you just don't quite have it yet, right? I knew I wanted to write about some kind of a growth of fungus in the shower. That's a premise. (laughs) There's a fungus in the shower. What does it mean? All that is the the story and like the, 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 the storyline and kind of the backstory. But you need that protagonist. I go back to what Steve told me when I was trying to figure out how to write Joplin's Ghost, one of my novels from years ago. Who's the best? Who is the person for whom this is the best or worst thing that could happen to them? Or maybe the both. I think in Rumpus Room is both the best and the worst thing that could happen to my character. But I couldn't quite... See her. I couldn't, you know. You when you have a premise, all right. You move into a stranger's rumpus room, which is like a little playroom in case y'all don't have one. Uh, and there's a fungus in the shower, and you're, the weird things are happening. I mean, that could happen to anybody. There could be any random person could walk into that room, and and some people wouldn't even notice the fungus. Some people wouldn't even care. So. A story is not just sort of a set of events that we come up with for a character to experience. I think that's a mistake that a lot of learning writers make, especially if you're a more plot-driven writer. A story is your interaction between a character and their world, (laughs) and based on a series of their choices, okay? So even if your character survives a plane crash, that's your inciting incident, That's not the story. The story is how the character perceives that experience, how the character moves forward from that experience, the mistakes the character makes after that experience, or what the character learned from that experience. So for Rumpus Room, I went back to my old uh, faithful, which is either a transgression or grief is usually a good doorway to horror. And in her case, it's both. She's committed a transgression. And she's in grief because she committed the transgression. She had all that stuff. In fact, I have to be honest, I didn't quite like her. Like what she did was so repugnant to me. She accidentally sort of hurt her daughter, broke her daughter's arm. It's the first line of the story, so it's not really a spoiler. (laughs) And I I did not like her at first. And my challenge as a writer was to sort of take every parental regret I've ever had, amplify it up to 20 you know like and and like anything you've ever felt bad about as a parent just make it 10 times that and put yourself in her place you have to have empathy for your even your villains you have to have empathy for these characters And that means you have to want to know them and you have to get to know them. So some of my quickest advice for writers or students or friends I have who kind of struggle with characterization, like I had a friend recently who who let me read her pages and the plot was like all there a hundred percent, but I could not get a sense of the character come to find out her agent had told her in a previous draft of the outline that it was too touchy feely. And she had pulled back on characterization. So that's that was kind of a funny story. But one of the shortcuts I tell people, this is just for you. Not everything you learn about your character is going to go into your story. So one of my favorite prompts, and I think I did this. I did this for Rumpus Room because I was having trouble seeing her and empathizing with her. What is your character's greatest shame that he or she acknowledges? Think about that, even if it doesn't go in your story. What is your character's greatest shame that they rarely even think about? It's so bad, it barely ever even comes to mind. What is their greatest disappointment? And what is their greatest unconscious wish? Because no matter what the outside machinations of your story are, your character should be driven by internal motivations. Yes, we're all reactive if something bad happens, But we all set out in life with objectives in life. So your character has objectives that have nothing to do with a specific plot line, maybe, that you've come up with. Who were they before your inciting incident, before the thing that gets your this particular story in motion? What did they want? What's standing in their way? And how are they going to get it? And that can be in terms of fighting a demon, in the case of my book, The Good House, or what she wanted before she knew there was a demon. She wanted to get to know her son better. And in some ways, and wanting to get to know her son better was the key to fighting the demon. So there's a relationship between the internal motivations and the external events. And I'm gonna drop it there because my baby's smiling, and I bet you've got some things to say too.
1: Oh no, it's just you know you could you could go on you know indefinitely. I believe really, yeah, me, I could. You could obviously teach a work a week or a month long or a year long seminar just in this aspect. Here, here's what I would say. Listen, I'm gonna go to a, a different thing. What you have heard is a masterclass in characterization that is dependent upon the writer having a sense of empathy for what human beings are. That, that in, your, in your case, if you didn't spend a lot of time studying human psychology, what you did is observe it. You did, yes. you lived your life, you watched people living their lives, and you developed an unconscious competence about what is it that human beings are that is separate from what you see in books. It's what you see in fiction. If your sense of what human beings are rests upon fiction, you better be reading the right stuff, or you'll think that you know somebody can you know can do you know Spider Man stuff by be- by being bitten by a radioactive spider. You know <laughs> it's the real world, no, it doesn't happen that way. No, but you still need to have some sense of how a a real human being would react, and that was the advantage that Marvel had back in the '60s when they were creating superheroes who had superhero powers but human frailties this was something that, that stan lee understood that that you needed that so i would start with the other question we, we've been talking about the the techniques to create a fictional character but i would like to to go back to the the question well what is a human being if if, if we're the to be the hero in the adventure of our lifetime then there are two things that you need to, to know about what is life And what are human beings? What is a hero? You know, in in, in the case of writing, it's generally the protagonist. You know, the the point of view character is not always the protagonist, but usually. You know, Watson is the point of view character, but not the protagonist in the Sherlock Mm -hmm. Holmes stories. He is observing the protagonist. If you start with the question, what, what are we? The the ability to write a character to characterize is mostly i would say having a sense of how human beings would react in a given situation and then finding the right way to convey that okay so all the techniques of how do i reveal what it is a human being is are based on some theory that is you know if, if you're looking at it intellectually some theory about what human beings are some feeling about what human beings are or some experience of what human beings are and i think that when people say you should go out into the world and get experience that's what they're talking about they should you should actually experience what things are so that you can have a sense of what human beings are they say fall in love get your heart broken you know get get kicked around some so that you can understand and feel that pain that that sense of loss that you should have an idea about what the world is and you know know the ways of all professions and the ways of all arts so that you can see these are all the different ways that people make their way through the world in this profession that you butcher baker candlestick maker you know alone you know married without children married with children your, your children die children grow up and leave good families bad families to understand those things and to convey and, and to compare them to your own experience of life so that every time you are interacting with someone or with the world, you're getting a little, you're deepening your sense of what people are.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you, you do that, I think that you get to the point of you can't predict what people are going to do as individuals, but you get better predicting what they're going to do as groups. You can't predict what a human being will do as an individual, but you understand it. It's like, oh, after the pre- – oh, this is why they did that. And you get better at predicting what somebody might do in the future, but you'll still be surprised by it. But it's like those are sort of the the clues that you're getting better at figuring people out. And what re- that really is is you're getting better at figuring yourself out. You know, yeah, I, that's the beauty. It's impossible for me to – Say these things without dipping into what my particular personal perspective on it is. So I don't want to say I'm not mistaking my perspective for the truth, but I am prepared to defend it. I became, Go ahead. This is our podcast. That's right. It's our podcast. But it, it's it's it, you don't necessarily think that you're right, but you have to be confident enough in your capacity to recover from an error to act with confidence. So I would say that where you want to start in characterization, you've got two different things. One is what the techniques are that people talk about. You know, what is their fear? What is their this? You know, you create a, a biography for them. You do this, you do that. But you also develop a theory. What are human beings? What is the human experience? What is your view of this? Are people basically good, bad? Are they honest, dishonest? You know, what motivates them, what drives them. And no two human beings will have exactly the same perspective on this. And this is one of the things that an artist has to offer the world, is their unique perspective on what is the world and what are the people who live within the world. Now, personally, I say that you, you know, the simplest way of looking at what human beings are, is to look at, you know, if you believe that that our behaviors are driven by our beliefs, our emotions then the results that people get in different arenas are external manifestations of what's going on inside them so you can talk about what people feel and think but what matters in that sense is what they do so what are the observable actions of a human being in the arena of their bodies for instance your bodies to a certain degree reveal your behaviors and you know those behaviors reveal your values and your emotions. What about their emotional relationships? Okay, How, do they love themselves? Do they do they see other human beings as being precious and sacred? Do they see other people as being adversaries? Are they driven primarily by fear or love? Those sorts of things. And then their careers. You know, your career is is hunting and gathering. You know, for animals it's hunting and gathering. For human beings, it's creating goods and services that they can exchange within other members of their community in order to to be rewarded. It's like a cell in your body. There are some people that do not choose to do that. They do it a different way. They are predators who watch other people exchanging goods and services and dive in and try to steal what they can, try to get what they can. That is another way of being a human being. And it is contrary in most cultures on the planet to what we agree upon and publicly say about what human beings should do Although I think that the majority of people will cheat a little bit if they feel like they can get away with it, if the motivations are are high enough. And there are cases where it doesn't seem to make much difference, like not stopping at a stop sign. If you can see that there's nobody coming for miles, you know, I'm not obeying the laws of society, but who am I hurting to taking <laughs> to, to taking a great you know, in a grocery store, well, I'm just saying whether well, or not these are good grapes because uh, otherwise I'll buy them. We all, there There are levels where where the average person steps across the line, and there's no clear dividing line that is agreed upon at what point do we become abusive, at what point do we become dishonest, at what point do we become bad people. Right. right. But the writer, the artist, or the parent, the human being needs to have a sense of this to develop their own philosophy of what life is and what human beings are, then characterization is simply creating a human being in a particular context, such that the the actions that they take over the course of the story reveal things about them. And that's that question that I asked you, who would be the perfect person to see this particular incident? You know, so you can start with a clear view of the world, And the incident you want to happen, then ask who would be the perfect person, you know, for that. And there are two questions that you ask there. Who who would consider this to be their greatest dream and how could it turn into their worst nightmare? Or who would consider this to be their worst nightmare and how could it turn into their perfect dream? Questions like that make you ask questions about what kind of person you want to put there, which then comes back to that question. Well, what do you think people are? You know, under stress, they reveal what they are. Do you think people are basically good or basically bad? You know, or or neither one, you know, and, you know, your your story then becomes an argumentation. This is what I think people are, or this Mm -hmm. is what I think the world is. In order to do that, like I said, you need to have a clear enough view of what people are, what the world is, what life is to be prepared to defend your position. Your story is an argumentation. You're saying, this is what I think the world is, this is what I think people are. So to that degree, you could do that by simply being honest with yourself about the content of your own heart or by getting out into the world and experiencing life or by studying life. you got three basic different things. One is physical you know, and experiential, one is emotional, one is intellectual. I suggest, once again, that you do all three. You get out in the world and meet people. You go deeply into your own emotions and ask yourself, you know, how am I like this person? How am I unlike this person? Or you read theories, psychology, history, autobiographies, you know, know, philosophy to develop a position that you are prepared to defend, or you could be like the kind of writer who sees a bunch of different possibilities, and every story explores a different one of these possibilities. You don't, you're you not serious about any of them, you know, which is its, its own philosophical position. We can't know, you know. I think that somewhere in there between the doing of the thing, the writing, and the studying of the thing, looking into yourself, looking into human behavior, you know, on an experiential level or on a theoretical level, you will... If you take it seriously, develop a sense of what people are and what the world is such that your stories express that.
2: Yeah, man, so many thoughts coming to me. I hardly even know where to begin. But, you know, in prose, a lot of this we can learn through the character's backstory and their recollections and even whole chapters that might take place in the past in a screenplay, it's more symbolic items. Like what cracks me up is that if you like enter at the kitchen of your protagonist and there's like a stack of dishes in the sink, that conveys, oh, this is a messy, emotionally troubled person. <laughs> like, like it could be a sink of dishes that's not even as bad as the sink you have at home. But because it's visual storytelling, every image resonates that much more deeply. So you have to be very, very um, conscious of how you use images, how you want to convey the characterization through the things that they like, through the things in their room, through the, the, the way they drive, the car they drive. And horror, for example, weak characterization is the quickest way to get me to turn the channel. I, you know, I I will watch any cheap, I love cheap horror movies, in fact. They're my favorite, literally, independent horror is my favorite kind, because I like to see people using their, their imaginations rather than spending money. So like a, a single set horror or in the woods horror that clearly costs nothing, but has really, really good writing and strong characters. And one of the, and back to what Steve was saying, and maybe what I was saying, I'm trying to tie it all together. If you have an understanding of people and you have an understanding of the way the world works, and you've also done some homework in terms of what your character is bringing into the situation before the situation unfolds, then you can avoid some of the rookie mistakes that you get with author convenience. Author convenience is so tempting because you know you want your character to go into that barn to to figure out what's that weird noise in the barn. Now, it, these there are two things being balanced here in human nature. One is our curiosity. Humans are very, very curious. Okay, that's why every movie has someone saying "Hello, <laughs> hell, I've done it, <laughs> I've done it in an Airbnb." Hello. I mean, But the degree of the exploration, the amount of danger they're willing to put themselves in without either telling the person they're there with or calling authorities. You've all seen that movie where you're like, why are they doing that? (laughs) Because their sense of curiosity is out of balance with what we all understand as the psychological realism of the survival drive, which is our strongest drive. Our survival drive is stronger than our curiosity drive. So if you're making your character do things over and over and over that are out of step with human psychology. As we know humans, as you know, humans, as anyone knows humans, that's the quickest way to come off as an amateur.
1: It's true. So, so it, it,
2: be careful. You,
1: you touch something that's important there. You know, many things that are important, but survival trumps everything. You know, there are people who take yeah. the position that, you know, sex is the strongest human drive. No, it's not. Nobody stops running from a forest fire to get laid. I mean, you you're, you're so survival trumps everything, but sex and bonding, with the potential to create family, is probably the second most powerful drive. You know that that once you take survival out of the question, a lot of the next one is who shall I mate with? Do you because that now you're talking about genetic survival as opposed to individual survival. Then you get tribal survival, and then you have emotions and stuff like that. You know, going up Maslow's hierarchy, but. To a certain degree, one of the thoughts that I, that I've had is if you look at Maslow's hierarchy or the chakras, you know, the seven different levels of of human consciousness, the, you know, survival, sex, power, emotion, communication, intellect and spiritual transcendence, all you have to do is imagine what, that a perfect person, you know, would have all of that, you know, just all of that in perfect alignment. Then all you have to do is tie a knot in it, is, is give them a problem. You know, you kill one of those areas, you give them a problem, you know, you threaten their survival, automatically we have audience attention. You, you, you threaten their supply of, of, of sex, you know, they're, they're, they want to meet somebody, they can't. So how many stories, it's the boy-meet-girls story. That is so central to human storytelling because it is the doorway to the continuation of the species that, that not going that way is remarkable and that we're actually going through major major cultural upheavals in regard to people who choose other ways of being besides being, you know, heteronormative that it is it is remarkable and therefore it is the potential source of infinite stories of helping us understand that the, that the core of human, of human nature might, might be 80%, 90%, 99% in one direction, but that the, the, the people who choose other paths are also human beings. They're also our brothers and sisters or neither or, you know, asexual, whatever. Y- you, y- you have your theory about what a perfect human being would be and then mess them up and then simply give them a situation where they have the chance to make a positive or negative decision. If they make the positive decision, they get to heal a little bit. To make the negative decision, they stay the same or they deteriorate. That's, you know, one perfectly good way of looking at what characterization is. There was a, a concept that Robert McKee talks about the concept of the ear of the earworm that, that uh, poets and, and playwrights in the, in the middle, in the middle ages would, think would say that a plot a story is like a worm that crawls in one ear of your character and by the time it crawls out the other ear like an earwig it has eaten everything that you need to know about that character that you mm-hmm. you match the character to the situation such that this character is totally emptied out and wrung under- out wrung out understanding how to properly match character to situation is an art form and all I yeah. can do is say, you know, take a look at your hundred favorite books, your hundred favorite movies. And these are things where the, the creator, the actor, the writer, the director matched the world to the character in a way that by the end of the story, the situation was resolved or not resolved. But there's ideally there's nothing more you need to know about that character. That you got to know everything critical to understand about that character because the situation emptied them out. You don't want to see James Bond dealing with a holdup at a 7-Eleven. That's not going to reveal anything about (laughs) That's not a good story. It's too easy. It's too easy. You want the situation that empties him out. You know, that's why you need the guy with the the sharks and the lasers, because James Bond is such a badass. In... (laughs) (laughs) In... In a, more, in, in a more grounded story, it can be something as simple as empty nest syndrome, two people who whose love for each other died out, but they still respect each other and their parents and they're taking care of family. What happens when the last child leaves the nest? And if, if I were
2: writing that story, it would be there's a ghost upstairs. <laughs> <laughs>
1: there, there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. And now what is the ghost a metaphor for? Exactly. So my gosh. I'm, I'm asking a literal question. What is Oh, what, it depends. The see, that's
2: where knowing their story, knowing their history, what secrets do they have? What did they never tell each other? What did their kids never tell them? What did they not know about the house? Now, that's the more like common trope is like, well, there was something about this house they didn't know. And all of a sudden now it's activated. But the more it is, I, I believe, the more it is tied to the character and their history and their journey, the more compelling the story will be.
1: So what, what if what if their love... Died because they lost a child. Mm, There we go. And, you know, the entire movie, entire play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Mm. is about a childless couple that pretends to have a child. And the truth Mm. is that their son died. And they maintain this fantasy. And they they maintain it for everybody until one- Spoiler,
2: thanks. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) It's not too soon. I said spoiler. No, I'm it, is, it, I'm it is a spoiler. That's right. It's <laughs> only totally kidding. Should have seen
1: um, it now. Okay, that, but no, that it, that's good. That's it, good. So, so they. So oh. the, the entire play is about the the fantasy breaking down and then being forced to deal with each other. So, what if this couple had lost a child that recriminations caused them to to be angry with each other, killed their love, but then another pregnancy came along, so they put all their love into raising their children. And in order for them to find each other, the ghost of the child that they lost is, you know, the house finally gets quiet enough for them to deal with the ghost of the child they lost. And the spirit of that child just wants his parents, her parents, to love each other. Oh, my God. That sounds like a
2: lovely story. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, this is us, like, all the time. Stories.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, ideas is we, throwing it, around. We, we could write that story so fast. You know that yes. it's a heartbreaking story. It's of yes. two good people who really cared, who really loved, and whose very love and their hope for for what a beautiful life they were going to have together got shattered. And they held their their family together like a bag of broken glass with their love for their children. And now they're either going to have to forgive themselves and each other, or or walk away. From, from, you know, from, from life, from their life together. Give or it even,
2: yeah, things. just fade away. They might just fade away themselves without a sense of purpose if they don't That's resolve true. it. That's true.
1: That would be the greater tragedy, wouldn't it? They stay And together. grief is There's scary.
2: Grief, Grief shows up in horror so often because it is so scary to look at loss in the face. We try to paper over it. We try to avoid it, avoid confronting it. Confronting grief is horrible. It's a horrible, horrible feeling. But if you come out the other side... With horror, you can have a better life, and you're stronger than you thought you were. That's the typical art for a horror character.
1: Horror and fantasy. Horror deals with human emotion. It's it's an emotional genre. There's a dominant emotion. Fear. Science fiction is primarily about ideas. It is, what if the universe is structured this way? What if human beings are this way? So science fiction has often been criticized because it, doesn't, it has not tended to go deeply into the question of what is it to be human. It goes deeply into the question, how is the universe structured? So it, it, it's really important for science fiction writers to understand that they're going to have a predilection towards the puzzle, the intellectual puzzle. And if they go deeply into the emotion that's being felt, they can have an, an advantage over writers who just deal with the puzzle level. Yes. And so oh, yes, this it elevates notion it. notion of, of how do we deepen our work? I think it's by looking at what we're strong at, and then looking at what we're weakest at, and working on the weakest part, and mm-hmm. we could tie and- this together with an initial thought that has to do with relationships. That that finding a relationship, romantic, sexual, friend, business partner, is one of the things that brings us out of our shell, and forces us to really examine who it is that we are in the same way that I knew that being in a relationship with you would force me to become a better man.
2: Well, real quick, a recap. And then we want to talk about relationships. Uh, make sure you you, your story exists for the protagonist not the other way around meaning don't shoehorn the protagonist into situations that are not true to their character this might not be the right character for this story you must believe in your characters before your readers will super super important which is what i had to struggle with 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 rumpus room they're not compelling because of what happens to them they're compelling because of the way they respond to challenges setbacks and adversity. so don't just throw a bunch of stuff at them let them let them help direct the plot too. be aware of witness characters who don't grow or change show who they are through photographable action as much as possible. Not just a bunch of flashbacks and, and no, like Steve said, have a theory of who human beings are and, and be, be true to that theory, which should show up in your writing.
1: You know, I looking at these things and, you know, it's either have a theory, have a theory about it have a feeling about it or have an experience of it that, and ideally all three, what is your experience of human beings? What is your feeling about yourself and other human beings? And what, what theoretical models do you have that I realized, I realized that I would not have been ready for you. If I had been insecure about myself in certain ways that that you and i've said this before many times that you were the best prepared human being for the life that you had in front of you that i've ever seen i give credit for that to your mom and your family and your community you are solid in that sense you what i call a potato you're not a stack of potato chips you know you you're, you're <laughs> solid you can stand on a potato The the thing the most important thing that i had to be confident in in myself had to do with sex, it had to do with, I had to be confident that I understood that game, that I could satisfy my sexual needs with integrity. That gave me, you know, the, anytime I wanted to, that gave me the freedom to say, I'm not interested in that anymore. What I want is an actual partner, is someone I can really love with all my heart. And I knew I was, in other words, I knew I was headed down the wrong road, but it wasn't a wrong road it was going in the same general direction, but it wasn't as smooth. And I was wasting time and energy that what you want is a partner. But sex in that sense is like a test drive. You know, it's like you and somebody, you're checking each other out on lots of different levels. And if if it might just be fun for a weekend or it might be the beginning of something eternal, of something that lasts a lifetime. But I think that you have to have that. And I think that a lot of men right now especially are insecure about how to take that step so i created a, a course and i won't even tell you what the title is on this podcast because the title was deliberately chosen to be provocative I mean, it is not suitable for work but if you go to incelcure.com you'll find you'll find this course i'm very very proud of it because you can see that if if anger is fear then all these angry men in the manosphere, they, they call it, the incels who cannot figure out how to make sexual connection with women that they relish and find beautiful and, and passionate and desirable. The, that, that fear of insufficiency curdles into anger, which unfortunately has turned into violence in a number of instances mm. in our in our in our world you know the, the real world things so i want to go to the core of it and cut off the cut this poisonous tree at the root and say you can get the things that you desire you just can't expect some particular woman to give it to you That no woman has an obligation to be interested in you it's no insult to you any more than it's an insult to all the women of the world that you're not interested in just any woman that comes along that we have these rights and responsibilities as autonomous human beings and i just wanted to go specifically to what i've discovered about sexuality and if i were not happily married i would not write this book i had to be out of the game to be interested in writing this book because it's giving away my secrets. <laughs> so, I
2: have to say, when he first told me the title, especially that it was directed at incels, which is, you know, a term that has come to mean people who are angry woman haters, but yeah. it actually just means people who are who are celibate and don't want to be.
1: Yeah, involuntarily celibate. That's all it means, yeah. denotatively. And all of the dysfunction comes from the fear that they're not good enough, that they won't be able to satisfy their needs that and that women they then hallucinate that women are responsible for their problem their problem is they didn't understand the game to begin with and the game has changed quite a bit from thousands of generations of things operating one way things really are shifting so the book whose title i will not say i suggest go to incel www.incelcure.com i-n-c-e-l-c-u-r-e.com and see the title for yourself this is as honest and compassionate a letter back to the younger man that i was who one looked out at the world and wondered how was he going to cope in this particular aspect of his life and it's part of the life writing suite of products that they're all designed to make you the hero or heroine in the adventure of your lifetime to help literally you. yes help you because if, if if there's a thing that i call a it's, it's personal evolution for social justice warriors. The first principle is to love yourself, to be willing to fight for yourself in your dreams. The second step is to love one other person. That by making that connection, romantic, friendship, sexual, whatever, it bonds you to the world. And the, cre- the creation of children or the creation of a life together make you consider things that you don't consider if you're just thinking about yourself and your ego. So that's literally the second step and waking up is to be able to love other people. And if you you can't love other people when you are angry and holding them responsible for your pain, you can't do it. You have to take responsibility yourself.
2: Absolutely. And I think you're right. It is a love letter to that younger person. You might know either a younger person or a more sexually insecure person in your life who needs incelcure.com. And if it isn't about sexuality, if you you're confident sexually, but you just still haven't found that partner, you're looking for that 25-year marker like Steve and I have, then Soulmateprocess.com is, Absolutely. I would say, a sister course or a brother course. Well, then, it's, more, it's more developed.
1: Yeah. It's it's more rarefied, it's more advanced. That this is about integrating, you've got you take you know how to take care of your own needs. And now you're ready to create a relationship. And if it is true, if our 90 day love feast is accurate. It's teaching me how people who have more mature and more integrated relationships operate. Then it's about learning how to put the other person first to put the Beautiful. relationship before your own ego, to be willing to handle your own mud so that you can look at your partner and realize they're not just the best you could do, that they're a gift to your life to not you are a gift to my life. And Stephen is my Barnes, gift. you are a gift to my life. Oh, sweetheart. And I love you so much. And I'm so grateful so for you every day of my life. And I would want this experience of love for anybody. So, you know, these two courses, you know, these two courses are about stepping into that space where you have everything that you need to create a partnership that lasts a lifetime. Maybe eventually we'll bundle these courses together. I don't know. It's possible. But right we now. We do
2: have a lot of them.
1: We do have a lot of them. And it's, it's you know, we encourage you to come to the live Zoom that I do, you know, every week. You just go to www.stephenbarnslist.com and you'll get on that, and you can ask any questions that you want. Tanana Reeve is usually there if she's if she's free. I day.
2: am usually there, and I don't usually promote my list. You know, I all this social media jumping has made me realize, like a lot of us, that we need an email list if we really want to be able to keep in touch with our readers and and people who like our teachings. Uh, so www.tanana.reeve.list.com. Tanana Reeve. You'll have to look at your phone or wherever you're listening to this to see how to spell my name, but to not a <laughs> <laughs> com.
1: And
2: Receive you know, your writers, I hope you enjoyed what we had to say. Even if you're not a writer, hope you like getting a peek under the hood to see how those stories are created. All of you though, go out and make yourself the hero or heroine in your own story.
1: The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Take care.
2: Bye, Va- Bye-bye everybody.
1: You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.